At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Yes, it does. Live from the NASDAQ market side, this is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan. A big show for you tonight. We got Guy Adami on the desk. And Guy Adami on the desk. And Guy Adami on the desk. Tim Seymour is going to be here joining us shortly. I'm sure he's got a story. Okay, so why Tim and Guy? Only because we've got two special guests for you tonight, including the biggest man in bonds, Scott Miner, Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. They run $265 billion dollars. And despite being known as a bond guy, he's got a big view on stocks that you will want to hear. Also, Laura Kane, head of America's thematic investing at UBS Global Wealth Management. I believe your Fast Money debut. Yes. So welcome. Congratulations. Good to be here. It's Scott's debut as well. Yeah. He's on CNBC. <laughs> and you know, hold on. Before we go, first of all, Tim's stuck on it. It happens in New York. Subways break down. Tim's on a subway. Number one, number two. Rafi's watching, right? Is he watching? Rafi. Yes or no? Rafi. Is he watching? Give a shout out. Give Rafi. a shout out. Hey, Rafi. Rafi. It'll be great. All right. Tonight on Fast, the earnings abundanza continues. NVIDIA, Roku, just a couple of names reporting in the last hour. We'll get you the details, of course, and the reaction. All three stocks trading up nicely in the after hours. Plus, Scott, you probably don't know this. We do a mystery chart. Sure we do. Okay, so that's a chart, and it's a mystery. After a volatile year, one analyst thinks this stock or thing is poised to pop. We're going to find out what it is and what might drive that move. I have no idea who it is. And Elon Musk may be dancing today, but the options market says the music might be about to stop for Tesla. Should you clear that dance floor? Oh, that video is just hard to watch. All right. So you figured it out. A big show tonight. And it's a little different tonight, too. We're going to shake it up a bit. Change is good, guy. Because we're going to hit the micro and specific stocks that you come to love on this program. But given all the big stuff that is going on, coronavirus, the Fed's non-QE, QE, central bank easing, and everything else, important probably tonight to go a little more macro. And so having Laura and Scott here gives us the perfect desk. Welcome to you both. Scott, uh, you just came out with a piece today, I believe it just popped on CNBC.com on our website, saying that we might be, the markets, the economy might be underestimating right. the ultimate impact of coronavirus. How much and why? Well, Brian, when you look at the data just now, if the coronavirus just stabilizes in China, our estimate is that we could cut the GDP to negative 6% in China. That's without continuation of the of the epidemic. Wait a minute. So the, right now they're running at 6% positive. positive. People are saying maybe we'll shave a couple percent. You think China could go to negative? Neg- negative. Look, if you saw new car sales today in Japan, China, down 22% for the month of January, right? I mean, this thing is having a really hard impact in China. And of course, you know, the expectation is that the Chinese are underreporting. So it's probably even worse than what we're seeing. But then, you know, the question is how much of this spills over into the U.S. and Europe? Uh, overall, we think that uh, global growth will get uh, lose two points in growth over the next for the the year or for the first quarter. So you know, I think two percent, two percent. That's uh, all the growth. I mean, well, for the U.S., we're running a little faster, but the global growth in aggregate will be down two percent. Now, China's half of that, but the um, 
Uh, Nothing is priced in relationship to this that seems to make any sense. We have treasury yields at lows. Uh, They're they're the haven asset coming from all the money from overseas as a way to escape risk in the coronavirus. And at the same time, stocks, I don't know how we closed exactly, but we were flirting with new highs all day. We hit them, actually. We closed down a bit. Close down a bit, and I'm listen. I'm with Scott, and great to have Laura here as well. And Tim is going to join us in a few minutes. But we hope you know before. Listen, before anybody even heard the term coronavirus, and I and I agree, bond yields were headed lower, gold was headed higher. I am shocked that in this environment we find a volatility index just hovering around 14. It's madness. I think the complacency out there is such that people don't think the market can go lower. And quite frankly, they've been right for a long time. But this might be the exogenous event. And I can't speak to minus 6% GDP for China. But even if Scott is half right, I think that is somewhat catastrophic. I would say overall we have a more optimistic view. So we think the economic impact will be more isolated to the first quarter. So we're calling for 100 to 200 basis points off first quarter GDP for China. But that being said, I do agree that there is some complacency baked in. I think the markets are reflecting a scenario where the virus is contained sometime within the first quarter of this year. And up until this point, we've seen mostly a demand story in terms of people being worried about demand for commodities and certain products. But once we get into a supply type of story where we see impact to the international supply chain, I think that's where we'll start to become more concerned. But at this point, that's not that's not our base case. But, but that's a that's a domestic European story, the, the supply chain, which we can probably go two weeks before that becomes a problem. But uh, when you look at the China economy itself, even even a 2% decline is big. But um, when you consider how much capacity has been taken offline, a lot of people don't even realize that Beijing which was locked down for two days. Um, you know, in that sort of environment, uh, people are not going to go to work. You're not going to get output. And, uh, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to return to, you know, any sort of level that was consistent with the pre-lunar holiday. And Tim Seymour. Tim, welcome. Glad you made it. You escaped from the underground. (laughs) Snake Plissken. Yeah, right on. It was a little bit like that on the way in. I mean, you heard Scott. Scott thinks worst case scenario that we could see China contract by 6%. Look, I don't think that there's any question about that. And when you look at global GDP downgrades, you know, UBS just went down to 0.6 for the first quarter uh, globally. And and the conversation for stocks is is really, if, if you think about where we are in terms of the NASDAQ being 20% over the 200-day moving average and, and, and the Dow Jones, whatever index you're following, 2018 at a blow-off top for markets in Jan 26, markets were not even that overextended. So here we are in an environment where we're talking about real fundamental hits to the global supply chain and the global economy, but markets are in a place where they're, they're as overbought as they've been at any time in, in the post-crisis environment, and it's all about central banks. I mean, if you think about this, this is about $400 billion of money market liquidity. Uh, the correlations of the markets, that to me is what we're trading on. So. Well, I, I agree completely. You know, it's interesting. There, there's a sort of esoteric debate going on uh, where the Fed says this is not QE, but other people, the market thinks it's why, QE. Scott, why are they being so hush about this? Because it, it, it seems like it's so obvious to us. Well, it, it's interesting. They make it. I, I just came from the Fed, and they, they make this. Type. Don't give away the yes. secrets. Do you have any money? All right. <laughs> no, the gold bars. I brought. Okay. The um, uh, but. They view QE as being what they did in QE1. They view large-scale asset purchases 
as being what came later. Right. So they're right. making this this distinction. But you know, if you go back and you you look at what Bernanke said one month before we started quantitative easing, he said the important thing is the Fed's balance sheet and the reserves. What the asset side of the balance sheet looks like is irrelevant. So okay. you know, that's that's their defense. That's their qualifier. Right. Thing. I would take an opposing view there. I would say I don't think the markets are entirely rate-driven at this point. I think it, that definitely is part of the story, um, influencing markets. But I think there is also some underlying strength. I mean, if you look at the unemployment market, look at consumer strength, and also the trade relief that we got. Um, I feel like we, we haven't been talking about trade as much anymore. But um, coming into this year, or at least mid-January, we thought we were going to see this pickup again in manufacturing. U.S. PMIs punched above 50 again. So there are um, things to be optimistic about beyond sure. just the rates. The core- economy is good. Nobody, right. nobody will debate that. We can debate the reasons, but whatever the reasons, the economy, vis-a-vis the numbers, right. are pretty doggone good. I think, I think sort of the black swan here, Laura, is that luckily, thankfully, we've only had, I think, 15 confirmed cases in the United States. Let's keep it there. If you wake up one day and it's 100 or 200, I could see a situation where Dow futures are down 500 points. Sure. I mean, I think to the, we don't you're right. Know what's yeah. We don't know. And up until this point, the cases outside of China have been relatively contained. So if something were to disrupt that narrative, then we would obviously um, start to become you know, more pessimistic. But, but if you look at the number of cases we have today in the United States, that is roughly the number of cases that were reported in China the first week of January. And we had this exponential growth curve in cases. So, you know, it, 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 I, you know, if you scale it based on the length of time the first case appears, we're following the same trajectory that China did. Right. But keep in mind, I think the Chinese have done a lot to try to control this. I mean, even in terms of, um, you know, quarantining individuals and also the flights that have stopped flying in and out of China. So, I mean, a lot of efforts have been undertaken, so I don't mm-hmm. want to discount those. Anyone that claims that they know where this, this virus is going is, is totally shooting from the hip. We, we have examples. I'm not here, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to work on time a little bit. Um, but the bottom line is uh, anyone... Xi Jinping? Uh, anybody that says they've got a call on the impact of the virus or the duration of the virus doesn't have any ability to call that. But people that look at SARS 2002, 2003, look at the environment, look at what it did in terms of short-term derailing stocks, what it looked like. If you bought Cathay Pacific in, in, in late December of 2002, you're a hero by the end of that year. And if you think about the short-term disruption, uh, the issue for me ultimately is we had a nascent recovery coming back into these markets. And what does it do to that? Because this by itself, I'm sorry, is, is not enough. Well, we got a lot more to talk about tonight with Scott and Laura, of course, and Guy and Tim. And Scott's actually got a big view on equities that you're going to want to hear. All right, coming up, all the latest numbers that are moving fast and furious after the bell. A lot of stocks in the green. Plus, the trillion-dollar elephant in the room, what the ballooning deficit means for the economy and your investment. Scott will tell you how it might all end up. And whether you're a deficit hawk or not, be sure to watch or listen to us live on the go from anywhere on the CNBC.com app. And we're back right after this. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. 
When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story. Asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Are you really, Tim? You're having a great night. I tell you, the phone, the subway, (laughs) the city bike that's now parked in the basement of NASDAQ. Yeah. All right, are you tired of hearing about the same old stocks, Fang, MAGA, and looking for some new ideas? Well, we've got them for you, or Jeffries does anyway. They're all the new note today, offering not one but eight different stock ideas in the industrial cyclical areas. Analysts saying that recent weakness in global manufacturing has created an opportunity in some of these industrial names. Among the names listed are lithium maker Albemarle, or the miner, they don't make it, Marathon Petroleum, Freeport (coughs) McMoran, United Technologies, Kenna Metal, Constellium. Tim, are you a buyer of any of these? Well, if you think they they all have something in common, certainly on the industrial, on the resource, on the reflation trade. It's not been a reflation moment for markets, right? If you look at what yields, I'm sure this is part of the conversation. Um, Yes, I I think so. And and I think we can all debate whether the the demand side of the equation for these companies is going to take life. Think about a free port. Think about what's been going on in copper prices. But if the group as a whole... um, Before coronavirus, emerging markets and all of these trades were breaking out. If we believe that, and again, we just said we can't predict this virus, but we can talk about it as when the dust clears, we believe that some of these trades are back on. Yes. But don't don't you think these a lot of these stocks have a a headwind with the uh, the expansion of ESG? Because, you know, more and more I'm having to deal with this issue. And, you know, this blacklining where they just take oil companies and say they're evil by definition yep. or miners, you know, it, I think uh, people are going to be in the mood, mode of divesting of a lot of this stuff. It's a great call, and, and your institution certainly is, is there to hopefully set the standard. I, I, the way I look at it, though, is... ExxonMobil, uh, if they can hand me a 6.5% dividend yield, which is effectively what they're handing you right now, I feel like I want to grab some of that. I think the reaction to ESG is some of it momentum. Uh, institutions don't walk that quickly with their feet. I think this, a lot of this has been sentiment, but I, I think this is the way of the future. And as a global citizen, I'm happy about it. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think some of these larger oil and gas companies, they may end up playing a part in the energy future in terms of investing in some of these more energy efficient or renewable technology over time. So I wouldn't call for all out uh, divestment anytime soon, but it is something that we're very focused on in terms of ESG. Yeah, the question is how deep do you go in ESG, right? The reality is electric cars are cool, but to, to make an electric car battery or a Prius battery, you got to dig up a lot of lithium, or a lot to make of nickel, that car profitable, a lot of cobalt, a lot of aluminum oxide. There's a lot of heavy carbon use that goes into manufacturing. By the way, if you want to be ESG, who makes this? Right? I mean, anybody who makes a plastic, Mother Nature. no, but what? How far does it go? Oh, the, the where bottle. you say, I'm <laughs> not owning, I'm not owning Coca-Cola, I'm not owning PepsiCo, I'm Great not owning anything that makes anything Listen, because everything pollutes. I would take umbrage a bit with the electric cars are cool, but that's subject to debate. And if you want to get <laughs> there's back, no torque, there's no there's no combustion lag, so that's cool. Yeah, I like you as know, in as in not warm. Oh, I, now I understand. Yeah. Albemarle reports on the 19th. The stock's been cut in half. You wait till then. Pete Power pitched United Technology. That's now a defense stock. That actually makes sense. And if ever there was a company that could be Amazon ED, it's Granger GWW. Just throwing it out there. 
Okay, so good discussion there. Those eight names, we, we said them, so we're not going to say them again. But let's get technical because two of those names stand, according to your next guest, head and shoulders above the pack. Interesting. That's a technical term. Let's go off the charts with Todd Gordon of Ascent Wealth Partners. Todd, save us. Yeah, Brian, I saw what you did there. Very nice. You're welcome. <laughs> so number one, Marathon. Technically speaking, I like it here. Uh, they're looking to uh, spin off their Speedway brand, also new CEO coming up in April, possibly a catalyst to make this little inverse head and shoulders become a reality. We have the 50 and the 50, 200-week moving average crossing here. So uh, on the weekly chart, there is a possibility that we can move higher here. So this is weekly. Go down to the daily. We'll zoom in. Just about the $70 region should be where buy stops come go off, and you might be able to get a piece. Again, only do it with strength. Again, the caution that the desk was putting out there, I think, is warranted in these names. But as you said, these are uh, sort of best in breed of the names we're looking at. Uh, number two, let's take a look at UTX. Guy just mentioned it. Uh, they're going to be merging with Raytheon, or uh, they'll be the second largest uh, defense aerospace company. Long standing uptrend, making new highs, uh, very good in the defense as well as the industrial XLI ETF. So, like that, uh, getting down to the daily. Um, so showing a little bit of hesitation here. We need to hold the $150 mark here if you want to get a piece of UTX in the portfolio here uh, on the daily chart. Again, 150 is your is your holding point. There you go. So, if we just do a nice little uptrend there, you're starting to see the relative strength sort of back off there a little bit. Um, so, again, we really <coughs> want to see that hold to continue higher. Else, be careful. Um, the one ugly duckling here that I, I don't like here um, is going to be Countermetal. Don't like it from a technical point of view. Uh, really, just a lot of exposure to energy, international manufacturing, going nowhere. Uh, don't like it, so stay away there. Also, if I could, quick happy birthday to my twin right boys. On. Six years old who are homesick. Come on. Ah, little man. All right. Todd Gordon, thank you very much. Look at some charts there. Scott, I want to ask, you are known as a bond guy, okay? But you are the global CIA. You can do what you want. We were talking before the show, and you said something that kind of took me aback. You said that you believe that despite all the concerns, and you are really worried about coronavirus, you could still see the equity markets overall rising 15% this year? Right. Yeah, and it's square the two. Well, Brian, it, look, it, it, the, the whole world is running on liquidity. And as central banks keep cranking out cash, and it's, it's going into the market, it's, it's leaking in. Like, you know, the, the Fed says, well, we're just buying Treasury bills. And I'm like, well, yeah, but when the guy who sold you the Treasury bills gets the cash, they're going to buy something else. And so <clears throat> I think the, uh, the, that we could have a severe setback in the near term if the coronavirus thing takes off. But, you know, it won't last mm-hmm. forever. And I think fifteen uh, percent would be reasonable this year. Really? But is that why? By the way, connect the dots. Is that why this repo move and the repo market is probably the most boring sort of plumbing of of Wall Street? I think you have to, but not insult the the, the just, money market deaths around Wall Street. All the repo right? men, so to speak. All right, but but here's my question, Scott. Can you connect the dots between the Fed's actions in this rather obscure insular market? And the rise in the equity markets and the 401k values of everybody watching and listening tonight. Is there a direct relation? Well, I think, it, I think it's more indirect because it, it, first it has to work its way through the system. And one of the places we're seeing valuations get into the land of the ludicrous uh, is uh, on, on investment-grade corporate debt. You know, investment-grade corporate debt is approaching, and high yield is approaching its all-time historicals 
tights against U.S. Treasury securities in terms of the yield pickup. So um, that, of course, you know, as bonds become less attractive, that makes stocks more attractive. It's interesting. I saw something today which, which was very interesting. <clears throat> you would have to, uh, to reach the actuarial assumptions that pension funds have to make you would have to have 18% of your portfolio in stuff that, you know, like private equity and so on and so forth. So all of this pushing rates down is forcing people to move out the risk spectrum to hit their actuarial assumptions. Is it risky? Uh, Yeah, I think it is. I mean, you know. When I see the 10-year Greek sovereign bond at 94 bips, 94 basis points, this is Greece with all due respect, to a great country, but the country that really has been at the epicenter of the European banking crisis. And what, what do you do with that? Uh, it, it's hard. I mean, you know, I'm going to be tell you, the practical question I face every day is, our clients keep shipping me cash because, you know, they're, they're insurance companies, they're pension funds. Uh, you know, some of them are, are, are overseas in Japan. They want to put the money to work. They have to put the money to work. And they have to, you know, hit, you know, certain actuarial assumptions. And, you know, here, I mean, something attractive in the bond market these days, uh, you know, a 100-year municipal bond that's rated single A like Caltech uh, at 3%. That, that's an attractive You're buying investment. a 100-year bond from California? California Tech. Hold the maturity? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is he, a parrot or a tortoise? All right, good, good. Maybe a tortoise with that investing strategy. Who knows? All right, well, we're going to switch gears for a second because we've been whale watching, you know, looking at sort of the big hedge funds. And we've got a big news alert. Laura, cover your ears. Third point releasing its 13 F filing moments ago. Let's get back to Dom Chu at HQ with what they're holding or used to hold. <laughs> All right, Sully. So, yes, let's make the transition from turtles to whales now. A third point, this is of course the hedge fund run by hedge fund titan and activist investor Dan Loeb. In the newest release, we do learn a few things about some of the moves that he's made. First of all, most interestingly here, they have a new stake, a new 70,000 share stake. This is again as of December 31st, 2019. So yes, this is a balance sheet snapshot look at that point in time. No telling whether they've gotten rid of it or added to it or traded around it, but still a new stake in Amazon.com shares, about 70,000 shares there. Also notable, Microsoft is no longer a holding. They had held it before. They have completely dissolved out of that particular holding. They have also gotten rid of completely their shares in PayPal holdings as well. Other notable moves here being made on the media side of things. A new stake in the new Viacom-CBS combination, a new 2.75 million share stake in those Class B shares. At the same time, they've reduced their Fox Corporation shares by just around 38% from 8 million to 5 million shares. Also a notable one to look at here. Five Below, the discount retailer, they have boosted their position in Five Below as of December 31st last year by 41% to 1.2 million shares. We are going to continue pouring over some of these numbers, but some of those highlights there, new stake in Amazon, they are, they are out of PayPal, they are out of Microsoft, and some up stakes in media companies like Viacom, CBS, and also Five Below, the discount retailer. Brian, I will send things back to you and the Fast Money crew. All right, Don, thank you very much. All right, coming up, how Tesla added billions in value today by doing something that many thought would have cut its value by billions. We'll get to that, but first, Frank Holland is in California. 
where there's a hot new topic in the weed world. Frank, what do you got for us? Hey there, Brian. You know, there's growing interest in hemp here at the World Ag Expo, the largest outdoor farm show in the entire world. That's because of the potential profits of hemp-derived CBD. Coming up on Fast Money, we'll look at how farmers and companies are getting into the hemp and CBD business. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Streaming media, travel, and microchips. It is time now for a triple play on earnings. All these stocks are moving higher. We got Julia Borson out west standing by on Roku. We got Seema Modi digging in on Expedia. Well, let us begin with Josh Lippin, who is all over NVIDIA. Josh. So, Brian, NVIDIA is surging here after hours. Let's go over this report. So, beat on the top and the bottom. Guidance for Q1, they did take that guy down by $100 million to account for the potential impact of the coronavirus, they say. But at about $3 billion, that still does beat what the street was looking for. Uh, talk about the segments as well. Gaming segment at $1.5 billion. That was basically in line with forecast. But the big number here uh, was really that data center number. That was much better than expected. Uh, investors, of course, focus on that segment because those chips carry. Uh, higher margins. I checked in with RBC's Mitch Steves. I want to get his take on, on the quarter. He covers the company, has one of the highest price targets on the street at 301. He first and foremost notes that data center number that it simply crushed, in his words, expectations at 968 million. Uh, notes that gross margins, as he points out, improved too, to uh, 65.4%. Nothing in this report, he's arguing, not to like for investors. This call, guys, starts at 530 Eastern and we'll be on it. Brian, back to you. All right. Josh Lipton, Josh, thank you very much. Investors like it, Tim. Well, they, they, the thing about this stock is they had liked it going into this number. It was up 15% year to date. If you look at the multiple on the stock relative to itself over the last couple of years, this stock is actually cheap. Uh, and I'm not telling you it's a cheap stock, but at the time when the semis are just off their all-time highs, that could have been part of the last block in terms of other indicators of risk and markets. So people are reaching out and grabbing the companies that have more growth. Data center, 65.4% gross margin. The gaming side of the business came into our conversation when we were talking about those parts of, of, the, of the microchip and the semiconductor area that I think is less competition where these guys stand out. 280 is the high that this stock hit, I don't know, 18 months ago, and I think, I think we're there. That's exactly right. 282, I think, was a high in the, the fall of 2018. I think it was October or so. And the data center growth, quarter over quarter, you're talking about 30% ish revenue growth. That's a staggering number. So you know what gaming was like? That's okay. But at a certain point, valuation is going to catch up. And it might be now. Tim's point, that 282 level was a recent high. We've gone straight up. You might see a huge blow off top tomorrow in this name, and that might set the tone for tech 
for the rest of the quarter. We shall see. Okay, well, let's turn now to Roku. That stock also jumping on its numbers. Julia Borson is in L.A. with the details on their earnings. And I guess some pretty dire predictions, Julia, for like the fate of cable television. Well, it seems to be good for Roku. Those shares soaring on faster than expected user growth. That user growth accelerated to a record addition of 4.6 million accounts in the fourth quarter. That's about half the company's additions of users in all of 2019. The subscription and advertising revenue on the platform was up 71 percent. Roku benefiting from a wide range of advertisers, including Disney Plus, which it pointed out sponsored the home screen to promote that app's launch. When the company's letter to shareholder CEO Anthony Wood predicting that Roku will continue to benefit from the shift to streaming in the coming launch of new streaming services, saying, quote, we predict that by 2024, roughly half of all U.S. TV households will have cut the cord or never had traditional pay TV. Now, as for the question of coronavirus, on the call just now, the company saying that there has been minimal impact of the coronavirus so far, but there is potential for more significant manufacturing and supply chain disruptions if the outbreak does become more severe. Roku's CEO, Anthony Wood, will be on CNBC tomorrow at 11.45 a.m. Eastern. I'm sure he'll be talking about coronavirus, cord cutting, and much, much more. Brian, back over to you. Yeah, I certainly will. That is one that uh, maybe all of us here have a keen interest in for a variety of reasons. <laughs> uh, also, Julie, we understand that there is some news on Facebook that is actually driving Pinterest lower. That's right. Pinterest shares dropping today on a report from the information that Facebook has launched an app called Hobby. And this app is designed to be an awful lot like Pinterest. It's designed to get people to create pages where they aggregate their photos and share um, share their interests with their friends. As you can see, Pinterest share is now down about 3%. It's interesting that as Facebook's opportunity to acquire companies is limited by all that regulatory oversight, it's created this internal division to try to create apps and distribute them widely. So we'll see if this one works out. Okay, we all. Thank you very much, Julia (laughs) Borston. Finally now, completing the hat trick, throw the squid on the ice, is Expedia. That stock soaring after reporting earnings as well. Seema Modi back at HQ with more on Expedia's quarter and the big reaction. Brian, here's a story. While Expedia withheld its guidance due to the uncertainty around coronavirus, Expedia chairman Barry Diller expects double-digit growth in 2020. He's also targeting a runway cost savings plan of $300 to $500 million. Now, remember, this is Expedia's first report card since the firing of CEO Mark Okerstrom and CFO Alan Pickerel on December 4th. Both were forced to step down by J- Chairman uh, Barry Diller over differences in opinion over how the company should be run. Now, on the call, Diller said, for years, we lost clarity and discipline. We're going to stop doing, quote, dumb things. But Expedia also warning that it's going to be a, quote, noisy year because of the coronavirus. Outside the virus, uh, three key challenges the company is trying to tackle now in 2021. Driving margin expansion, two, growing its market share in short-term rentals as Airbnb readies its IPO, and finding more strategic ways to compete with Google. The stock has underperformed over the past one year, but you can see the stock shooting higher here in extended trade, up 10.5%. Brian, back to you. All right. Thank you very much. Let's trade that around the horn. I mean, everybody's 
reacting positively to everything tonight, Guy Adon. Roku's interesting. And Dan, if, if Dan Nathan were here, he He'd would... be mad about the Pinterest news. He might be. I have a Pinterest page. He'd be mad about anything. Dan's Come on. I mean, mad. let's just get it, get it straight. I mean, you, Laura, you're a Pinterest fan. You should get on my page. It's out since. Staggering, actually. It's so good. But in terms of Roku, that's what I was going to mention. You're going to see a lot of analysts have to raise their price target. Morgan Stanley downgraded the stock in early December. Watch to see if they upgrade it. Need them as a $200 price target. Forget about valuation. It's about growth and improving margins. And as you like to say, I mean, it's not really an ARPU thing, but it's an ARPU thing. So I still like Roku. Yeah, and, and, and short interest in this name continues to be a story, and it explains the kind of moves you get on this. The short interest is certainly well north of 10%. It's a stock that, look, we, we all know this secular story of the move away from linear TV, and, and it, it's happening. Roku's in there. It, valuation at some point matters. Uh, in terms of hours watched, some of that is moderated, too. I believe there's a, something that Roku now says, it's are you still watching kind of thing. So the hours watched actually is not as impressive, but there's their guide for the year uh, is what's moving this stock right now. It's certainly in line with expectations. Yeah, I saw some comments that I think the CEO said something like they expect 50% of all cords are going to be cut or never Have put. you cut the cord? What's that? Have you cut the cord? Very Good. personal question. I'm sorry, yeah. you're right. I'm sorry. We, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about that later. Five-year-old. We'll yeah, yeah, no, by the way, I'm a Comcast employee. <laughs> right on, man. Never cut it. All right. Earnings down, but there is much more ahead, including... Could global growth concerns have created an opportunity to get into some beaten down sectors? We take a look at some cyclical stocks that could be primed for a pop. Plus, a monster loss for Aurora Cannabis in its latest quarter. But can the newly minted CEO turn things around? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back. Well, this year, so far, it's early, but so far, it's shaping up to be a pretty hot year for the hemp industry. So let's go back out west to Frank, who's at the World Ag Expo in Tulare or Tulare, California. I don't know, is it Tulare? It's too Larry, actually, Brian. Is it Gilroy? You know, the U.S. CBD market's expected to nearly double in 2020 to $8 billion, and that has created some high hopes for hemp. Cannabis' cousin that does not get you high, but a lot of people believe has medicinal benefits when it's turned into CBD. Here at the World Ag Expo, the largest outdoor farm show in the entire world, for the first time ever, they actually have a hemp pavilion. And here, they're showing farmers how to grow the crop, as well as showcasing all the other uses for hemp and CBD, from seeds to building materials, everything hemp is being showcased here. But hemp and CBD will extend far beyond the agriculture business. Big brewers, AB InBev, Constellation Brands, and Molson Coors, they teamed up with Tilray, Canopy, and Hexo to create products with CBD, CBD-infused drinks to attract new customers who may be switching from beer to hard seltzer, or would just feel more comfortable getting their CBD from a known brand. Here in the U.S., hemp growing has really exploded in 2019, largely due to the passing of the Farm Bill in 2018. So supply, that should not be a problem. The question here is demand, and if hemp-derived CBD can grow the revenues of those Canadian cannabis companies that have seen their values decline by more than 50% over the last year. Back over to you. All right, Frank Holland. Frank, halfway between Bakersfield and Fresno. Frank, thank you very much. All right. Sticking with the pot space, shares of Aurora Cannabis seeing a bit of a bounce today. This despite what some considered pretty disappointing numbers. Interim CEO Michael Singer, though, still optimistic on the company's path to profitability. He spoke to CNBC earlier today. We will certainly go into fiscal 2021, which is a period starting July 1st this summer. Um, and we will deliver a cash flow positive business in that 
in that fiscal year to our shareholders and ensure that we um, you know, become a more uh, stronger balance sheet and, and a company that is certainly able to sort of support itself with its own operations. All right, Tim, your take. So Michael Singer, who's been in the industry for a long time, moved into that chair when Terry Booth uh, exited or was forced to exit. But either way, Aurora was a leader in this space. Aurora needs to reassert themselves in a Canadian market that, frankly, just isn't of the size of the U.S. market. So a lot of the Canadian LPs, as we know, it it's, shouldn't be an indictment against them, but their market caps never match the market uh, addressable market opportunity. The fact that the stock's up today is that people expected to see further erosion of their gross margin. They came in at 41 percent, down about 15 percent. Um, for Aurora, it's definitely to be about goodwill and write downs and what really happens here because the company has a global platform but to be clear the real business is in Canada and and back to hemp I mean look this is could be the next great uh, US farmers industry and I think we've already started to see that in Kentucky and certain parts of the southeast but but I've been meeting with hemp companies over the last month and a half um, that, you know, basically are, are looking at isolate prices, which is essentially the processed hemp, or the, the biomass, which is before it gets there, and they're diving because demand is, yeah. is not there, and you're also seeing that the FDA has not followed through. You can't drink a CBD-infused beverage right now legally on the shelves because the FDA doesn't say right it's okay. Yeah, it, wasn't this our first great crop in the United States? I mean, it literally, was. it was back one of the, the back in the back in the 1690s. You know, and we take, our, we take our safety here at Fast Money extraordinarily seriously, as you know. So it was good to see Frank wearing his life jacket there in Bakersfield. <laughs> I mean, Not I hope Bakersfield, he's okay. It's nice laugh track. It's it's too long. between Vesalia and... he is, and it was stunning. It was pretty good, I got to say. has a little flash. All right, but Tim didn't wear a helmet on the city bike. All right, coming up, is the Tesla now. dance party coming to an end? Option traders are ready to turn down the music on the Tesla rally. Maybe we'll explain. And $1.1 trillion. Nope. We're not talking about the size of guy's bank account, mm. are we? Nope. It is the daunting federal deficit. A lot of you are no doubt worried about it. Maybe you should be. Scott will give you his view as well. We'll get some ideas from Laura. We are live from the market site, NASDAQ, and Times Square, and we're back after this. All right, welcome back. The federal deficit ballooning to just about $1.1 trillion in the first four months of the fiscal year, an increase of about 25%, military and health care spending surging. But one big source of revenue, corporate taxes, those surged by 27% between October and January. Now President Trump aims to narrow the deficit slightly and extend corporate tax cuts, but his budget's unlikely to pass the House. Does the deficit, you got, this is going to generate a lot of buzz, I know, because people are out of their minds on this. Does it matter to the markets? No. But it should. It should. But, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Right? I mean, look, we, we have trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. And we have a Federal Reserve who's told us our job is to keep interest rates low and goose inflation and keep the economy going. So, you know, it's a marriage made in heaven. They have to buy assets. Uh, the Treasury wants to borrow money. But, you know, if you play this out over a decade... You, you come to some weird places like, you know, is it turned into modern monetary theory, right? Are we essentially, because when the Fed, when the U.S. faces its next downturn, there's, n- there's no real ammunition left to cut in interest rates. So if they're going to turn to the fiscal side, and then the fiscal side is going to say, we got to sell the bonds, and I think the Fed's going to buy them. Right, I would agree. I think in the short term, it's not a major market concern, but in the long term, it could be. And what would change the picture is if we saw, um, you know, a dampened economic outlook, if we saw um, 
less foreign interest in U.S. securities, that would really make it more of an immediate-term concern. Um, but we don't see a catalyst for that right now. So all that taken together, it's not something that's keeping us up at night in the, in the immediate term. And, 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 I, you know, and listen, I, I don't want to make too much of it because, you know, this is fast money and bonds are slow money. But we had the worst or the lowest yield, I shouldn't say worst, <laughs> the lowest yield 30-year bond auction in ever, yeah. ever today. Yeah. Amazing. Why? What does that tell you? Well, the first thing it's telling you is that uh, you know there's a lot of haven money coming into the market, and there's a lot of liquidity from central banks. And you know, to use the expression Rick Reader used today when I was with him is, and he's right, we're running out of bonds to buy. There's so much demand for fixed income that we're, we're, there just isn't enough fixed income securities to fill the demand. Yeah, and, and $14 trillion in negative <clears throat> yielding securities out there as well. So uh, it's interesting because the, the euro's down almost 3% in the last 20 sessions. So we'll, you know, you're getting some trades, you're getting some risk-off trades in the middle of this risk-on. But I think we're all basically saying that the U.S. is a flight to quality, wherever you want to call it. And maybe it's for a pension fund or someone who's got their actuarial, actuarial responsibilities. But ultimately, uh, the U.S. dollar is getting up near three-year highs. So, you know, there are some things that are telling you either people are getting concerned about risk and, and it's not just a, you know, a yield down well, environment. One thing, too, is, I mean, Tim, this is, I mean, if you want a positive return on your, on your debt investment, the United States is pretty much the only place left to go. Yep. So, but does that mean that people are buying things they shouldn't be buying? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean people right. are buying, I, I could sell debt. And yeah. somebody would buy it. Yeah, probably. We could securitize you. You're a handsome man, though. I'd I buy you. I really debt. am. I'm just saying. I, I saw I saw a new private debt fund the other day, and the advertisement was there. You can get a 12 to 15 percent yield on private debt because they lend to companies with negative cash flow or, in some cases, no revenue at all. Speaking of that, but quickly, are you buying oil and gas debt? <clears throat> no, no. So you just said everybody's buying everything. But you won't buy oil and no, gas. No, no, no. Me. You ask me. Okay. <laughs> I'm not buying. No. E and P right now is off limits for us. Uh, I'm looking at midstream whether we should just blackline it. Pipeline. Also. Fancy word for pipeline. Right. But you know the. Uh, I mean the majors are. They're. They'll survive this. But uh, when you look at the number of uh, companies in the energy patch that have negative cash flows, and you consider the the risk we have to the price of oil. Uh, you know, if this coronavirus things gets worse, uh, you know, Brian, I think you said that you could see demand for oil fall by two million two million barrels a day. Uh, we're already overproducing by a million barrels a day. Uh, so, you know, I don't see what's going to hold up energy prices. Well, maybe nothing. We're going to find out. OPEC and Russia, maybe. Fingers crossed. All right. Coming up, speaking of oil and gas, Tesla on a tear. But are there some cracks starting to form in the big Tesla rally? The options markets think so. We'll get to it. Plus, a sneak peek at the Kramer camp. Jim's got his head in the clouds talking with the Ring Central CEO. That stock up nearly 20% since reporting earlier this week. And of course, after Mad, the latest CNBC special on the coronavirus outbreak. About 60,000 known cases now. That it's special tonight, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. You do not want to miss it. We're back after this. Anybody worried about dilution? Huh? No, not pollution, dilution. Not Elon Musk. 
Tesla stock soaring today despite announcing an injection of $2 billion worth of new stock into the market. But options traders are betting on a major heartbreak maybe to come for Valentine's Day for Tesla. Options play chief strategist Tony Zhang is over at the plasma to break down the Tesla at no interest in Tesla, as we know, Tony. Thank you, Brian. Let's take a look at Tesla. Now, ever since the stock broke out above $400, it's been shooting at record volumes, almost 500,000 contracts traded a day. Today, we saw almost twice that. Now, what's really interesting about today's price action is right at the open, what we saw was a fairly large number of very similar, very sizable put spreads traded out of the money that were that expired tomorrow that were purchased. An example of this was 926 contracts of the February 14th, which expired tomorrow, 680, 675 put spreads that were purchased for just 76, 76 cents. Now this vertical is about a $5 wide vertical with a, with a break-even price of about 679, which is almost a 15% move to the downside by expiration tomorrow. Now to understand this particular trade, let's take a look at the particular chart What's interesting is that this trader is targeting a 15% move to the downside. Now, this trader laid out $70,000 in premium to get into this trade, and if this stock is below 675 tomorrow at expiration, he's looking at about a $400,000 return on his on his trade. In this particular trade, you know, 15% is a lot, but yeah. anything can happen with Tesla. Wow. Big bet there. Uh, good stuff, Tony. We'll uh I'm sure talk more about it tomorrow night, by the way, which is option <laughs> to the full Big show. Big away tomorrow. 5.30 p.m. Eastern right after this show, which for some reason becomes a half an hour on Fridays. Because you have away at 5.30. Your final trades. All right, welcome back. Before we get to our final trade, Scott, um, you say it's a good time to be a little safe and keep some cash handy. Yeah, I think, look. Brian, I think there will be a buying opportunity here at some point over the next few months. And having some dry powder on the side, uh, you know, give you flexibility. And, and if people missed it earlier, you do believe overall the, the, equity, the equity markets could rise 15% this year? Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, look, if, if you want to buy it here, I guess you can. But I think you're going to have to ride out a lot of volatility between here and there. A lot of volatility. By the way, Scott <coughs> wrote a piece. We wrote about it on CNBC.com. You can check it out on our website. I've also tweeted and LinkedIn and sure linked out and FaceTimed it and whatever else. All right. It is time now for your final trade. Why don't we go around the horn kicking it off with you, Mr. Tim Seymour? Yeah. So Todd Gordon talked about some really interesting, start, interesting charts. UTX is certainly one of them. If you look at the U.S. defense industry, too, this is a stalwart. This is a company that essentially generates free cash flow. The valuation isn't difficult. The Otis uh, and some of the spin-off of the assets look very interesting to me. UTX. All right, Laura. Sure. So in U.S. markets, we're focused on communication services. Uh, there we like some secular exposure to trends like digital advertising, e-commerce, uh, our standouts, and also exposure to trends in streaming media. Streaming media. Roku's big numbers, by the way. Uh, Scott, silver? Yeah, I'm a buyer of silver. I mean, look, if, if my s- scenario plays out, uh, you know, precious metals are going to be a haven trade, and silver has a lot more room to run than gold. Gold guy Adami. Shout out to the Del Barton wrestling team. Crushed Bergen Catholic yesterday. Bunch of those guys at New York Athletic Club tonight. Fire eye, Brian. There's something going on. I like it. Thank you. Great stuff, Scott. Thanks, Laura. Scott. Laura. Great job. Appreciate it. Mad with Jim starts now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more 
as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.